The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Tony Alexander was in one of the biggest jobs in economics as chief economist at the BNZ for 25 years, where he helped advise the bank and nation through a lot of economic change and disruption, until last year when he decided to disrupt himself and left. Since then, you can still find him on the media as one of the leading commentators and through Tony's View, a weekly free newsletter with a paid, more detailed subscription offer. You'll know Tony from his years on the telly and his regular columns, and in a year where a lot of commentators have come a cropper, his measured, data-driven offering has been fantastic. He specialises in helping people understand the economy and making it simple and clear enough that they can make better decisions on their businesses and house purchases. It's a big goal, but like the saying goes, any old fool can make something complex, it takes genius to make it simple. To chat commentary, predictions, making yourself redundant, housing obsessions, and what's next for him and all of us, Tony Alexander joins us now by Zoom from Wellington. Tenakwe, thank you for being here. No problem, Simon. Hey, so first up, what led to your interest in economics? Okay, good question. So we're going right back to the 1970s here. There was a big building boom in Christchurch. Well, the country as a whole, building houses. My father was a builder. He would do uh, ownership flats, uh, houses, spec houses, etc. And uh, in 1973, New Zealand joined the European community. Oil prices quadrupled. Things started to go really, really bad. And unfortunately, Dad had to take his uh, small business in Christchurch into um, voluntary liquidation back in about 1977, um, 78. And, and we lost everything, basically. The beautiful house on the outskirts of uh, Christchurch and went to renting a dingy old place in St Albans there for about 30 bucks a, a week. And our mum, she got depressed. And so she goes to the doctor and uh, says to the doctor, I'm depressed. And I believe she probably says, you know, give me some drugs. And uh, the doctor said, well, no, I'm not going to give you the drugs. I recommend you go and read this book. And mum was telling me about this. And I said, well, uh, what book did he say you should go and read? And she said, well, he said I should read The uh, Grapes of Wrath uh, by John Steinbeck. And I said, oh, okay, um, what's that about? And she says, oh, it's about these people in the Great Depression. And I said, oh, what's the Great Depression? And she said, go find out. 
And that's what got me into economics. I thought, okay, here's something with an interesting title. And so I started reading about it through the uh, school library there in uh, Christchurch. And uh, I found by what back then was fifth and sixth form, I was uh, accessing the uh, first year university text. And so, yeah, I found I understood it. And I basically got into economics there um, because of uh, what the doctor said to my mother. Wow. And it's so interesting, economics, because it's kind of like where history and finance and um, social changes and demographics and statistics, uh, they all kind of come together in this thing that's the story of of the age, um, but also a lot more. Yep, yep, it's a lot more, but this is where the trap lies for your typical economist as well, because we deal in a field where most people, uh, they don't understand the intricacies uh, of it, and we know they don't understand. And so we know when we get up there and we're saying something, there's only a small number of people there who might uh, uh, be able to pinpoint the difficulties in there and maybe challenge us back uh, on it. Now, I can speak in personally, that gives you a feeling of a little bit of power, and so... Uh, people are asking you about a thing you know about that they don't know much about. Here's the danger. When people see something else they might not know too much about, they go, oh, let's ask that economist bloke because he knew about this thing and maybe he knows about this thing. The trap is you start answering them in areas of psychology or sociology and you start straying away from where your comp- core competencies uh, lie because you're sort of getting all this respect from uh, people asking you about interesting things. So you actually have to be a little bit careful. You do need uh, to do untold reading and you do need wide knowledge generally about what the economy and society is up to because, yes, developments in society, uh, politics, uh, the health field, will have a major influence on what the economy is doing. But you've got to know your limitations. And at some point you've got to say, well, no, I really don't know how the uh, pandemic is going to pan out. We'll take it as it comes. What are the core competencies for a bank economist? Okay, uh, yeah, number one, you have to be pretty good at uh, mathematics, not not calculus or something you know, deep like that, but you have to understand uh, mathematical relationships between key variables, uh, like your interest rates, your unemployment. You, you pretty much learn all of that at university, and if you're no good at it, you definitely get weeded out. If you're no good at maths, you're, you're probably not even going to make it to year three um, at university. So, number one, you've got to be good at the maths and statistics, I guess, um, in particular. Um, Number two, you do have to be good at writing an understandable uh, report. It's easy to write a detailed report. You just keep going, basically, and you write and write. And that's why uh, when I was a tutor, for instance, uh, University of New South Wales many years ago, and I'd I'd say to the uh, the students in the the class there, um, look, it's easy to set you an essay with a word limit of 1,500, but this is 500. You need to condense your ideas down into a small sort of uh, uh, number of words there. So you've got to be able to write a good executive summary. Um, You have to be good at public speaking as well. That's something that developed from uh, the 1980s. It wasn't so much a thing before then. But banks from the deregulatory days of 1984-85 sort of took a bit more of a front foot there uh, through the media. And so they saw there was an opportunity to use their economist uh, to do that. So you need to be the good public speaker in terms of speaking with different audiences, and you need to be comfortable dealing with the, uh, with the media. And, and, of course, you have to be reasonably good at economics uh, itself and have got a fairly good grade, uh, at least at you know, honours level, maybe masters. And what do you do day-to-day 
Innerbank as a chief economist. Uh, I, I, you know, what, what is the kind of remit? What advice are you being asked to give and who are you having to talk to? Yeah, okay. So back in the day when I, I used to do that, um, initially I was working with the dealers. So in the dealing room, treasury operations at uh, Westpac initially, then a share broking firm for a year, and then the BNZ from 1993, I think it was. Yep. And I was working with the dealers there up until late 1994 when I became um, chief economist. And from that point onwards, there was interaction with the bank's uh, strategic planners. So looking at some of the medium to long term trends in the economy and how that might impact on the bank. But I found with the BNZ there that the philosophy they were taking to the marketplace was more one of we will assess each individual credit application, each loan individually on its own merits, rather than saying, right, we think dairying is going to boom, let's throw everything into dairying and let's not do sheep and beef or let's not do plastics manufacturers. It was a different um, approach. And because of that, um, their actual need for somebody like me to be giving detailed economic information and insights um, was a lot less than if you were a bank and took an industry-focused view on where you saw things going to go. And it took me about, I guess, a year to realise that that was the, the philosophy, the approach in the BNZ. And so that meant I could turn the job around to play more to where my best strengths lie, which is with the publications, the writing, and with the public speaking. Um, as well. And so my typical day, well, there ended up being nothing typical about it. I'd be giving maybe 100 presentations or more uh, of a year, so there's lots of travelling involved. And I think at one stage there, early on in the technology days, I was one of only three people in the bank who were actually uh, mobile, who could stick the PC into the telephone jack there and uh, and communicate with the the head office um, through that. And so, as I've said to people all over the years, I have to be able to do my job as effectively from a motel in Ikatahuna, Riverton, wherever, as if I'm sitting uh, in head office. So you've got to be very adaptable. Um, You've got to be able to do a lot of stuff on your own. If you're relying on a lot of other people, then the whole travelling becomes very, very difficult. So you're partly drawn to being a little bit of a lone wolf naturally. That's probably been different um, most recently, 10, 15 years, where just about every bank has all of their dealers actually in the dealing room. For myself, uh, becoming chief economist, I was outside of the dealing room straight away, so a bit of a mushroom um, sort of off to the side. And what that meant was at the BNZ, we had sort of a, a split of economic responsibilities. Myself as the general media person doing whatever came up. And then we had the, uh, the skilled guys, uh, three of them, working in the dealing room, servicing those clients, the dealers, the managed funds, the overseas investors, uh, all those sort of things. So, yep, typical day, lots of travelling, working odd hours and doing the work in the columns wherever the opportunity took it, airport lounges, etc. And over that uh, 25 years, especially as chief economist, um, you know, it's quite a remarkably high profile role in the economy. And a lot of people looking to you to help them with those big decisions in their life. Tell me about, you know, when you landed on and how you expressed that goal of yours to be able to make the kind of macroeconomic and the likely trends that are coming simple enough and usable enough for everyday people to be able to use your commentary to help them make decisions about their business or their home purchasing. Yeah, okay. I think I see what you're asking there, Simon. So that would probably go right back to when I was working with Westpac in Sydney, 1986. So uh, 
uh, relatively new uh, entrant into their economics departments back there. And uh, all through university and school, I'd been uh, very shy. I hadn't done public speaking at all. I avoided anything uh, remotely like that. And yet us research officers back at the time, we had to give a presentation to year 13, seven form um, kids that were coming into the big smoke back then. And so I was assigned the oil industry. And so I researched the oil industry and what was happening. And I wrote out, you know, many times, long hands, double spaced, what I was going to say to these uh, kids. And uh, when I got up there and I started reading out what I had to say, I felt uh, this wasn't conscious. This was all subconscious. I felt I knew what it was I was going to say. And I felt myself asking myself the question, I wonder if they're understanding me. And I found myself concentrating, looking at these kids in the room, looking around and going, hang on, I don't think they're understanding me. I walked away from the lectern, I stood beside it, I leant on it, and I just started talking to them at a language I figured maybe they could understand. This wasn't planned. My boss was standing at the end of the room. His mouth actually fell open as, what the hell is going on here? And I found, after the, from, from that talk, I had an ability to, I guess, ad-lib, stream of consciousness, just chat to people. I had absolutely no idea uh, that I had. So for me, it's basically a natural thing. Uh, I relate more to, I guess, the brain patterns and the level of understanding of the average person in the street rather than the fund managers, the overseas hedge funds, um, the top executives in Fonterra or these sort of places. It's just naturally where my ability seems to lie. And that's what I mean when I said earlier on when after a year at, at BNZ as chief economist. Um, I figured out that uh, they didn't actually need me for the big, deep, detailed strategic planning. I would play to my strengths, and those strengths are the writing and just speaking as if I was talking to a group of uh, Year 13 kids out there. If you don't have that natural ability, people will see it. Uh, it's hard to fake it. You can certainly learn a lot of techniques, and I've seen people go through some speaking courses and definitely improve themselves. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it pays to have a bit of natural ability and purely by chance, good luck, that's what I found I had. And how do you go about basing your uh, predictions and, um, you know, commentary in data? Uh, so, you know, a lot of people probably see people talking on the TV, but they don't see all of uh, the work that they do to have something um, of their own and something, you know, solid enough to stay. Yeah, initially, I guess, uh, in the earlier years, I uh, tried to make it as much as possible driven the forecast by actual equations. You know, I, I worked with the Reserve Bank of Australia on their econometric model. Uh, when I left university at the end of 84, within three weeks, I was across there um, with the RBA. And so you, you've had all this training, you've learned the, the structure of these sort of econometric uh, general equilibrium models through your university days. And so you take that approach out. Um, you better learn fairly quickly that in the real world, in the business world, these things don't really work. The relationships change very, very quickly. And so the model upon which, you, you know, the data you've based your model upon is out of date rel relatively quickly, especially with structural reforms in your economy, shocks coming along, etc. So the trick is basically you develop a baseline view about where you see the economy, interest rates, house prices, unemployment, etc. going. And then you update that view as the year goes by, as you get new data. And this is the key problem I've noticed for many bank economists and here and overseas over the years. Because as the data come out, and maybe then it's not what you thought it was going to be, so your view is challenged, 
when do you change you change your view and i've seen some economists wait too long way 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 too long to change their view and i've seen others just change it too quickly and then they have to go back again especially when it comes to monetary policy implications so there's some sort of sweet spot in the middle which shifts over time where you're using your judgment and people will go okay yeah i can see it's making sense what you're saying there and you'll you know you'll still sound credible with your audience but yeah you've got to be not flip flopping around too much by being too data reactive but don't be a stick in the mud and a year down the track when you said the economy's going to be in recession and it's booming away you're still saying oh but no it's still going to go bad any any day now there's one example of that out there um at the uh, at the moment you know following the global pandemic and the bounce back um afterwards but you find over time that you've got to pull back from relying on any sort of mathematical relationships you use your experience you look back at the previous uh cycles and you look at just i guess common sense that when this th- happens this thing tends to happen but don't be wedded to a particular percentage change in that second thing because you just know the world's different from whenever you saw this thing last time around last cycle 3 or or 7 years ago so yeah try and keep it relatively uh, sensible don't be too wedded to strict mathematical relationships and is it hard like is it um you know stressful and you, you know um making making a call on which way house prices are going to go. Like, for, for example, if you went back to kind of the middle of this year, when the world looked like, um, well, the rest of the world did what it looked like New Zealand might do. Um, rest of, you know, most of our big trading partners outside of the ones in Southeast Asia and, and China um, have had an extraordinarily challenging year. Um, but at the end of it, house prices are up and our economy is doing better than many would have suspected. And, um, you know, lots of people would have made decisions about the rest of the year right in the pits of when it was hard. You know, what's the stress like and what's the thought process for you forecasting in, you know, what what was repeatedly called unprecedented times? Yeah, uh, for these events, for the global pandemic, COVID-19, I wouldn't use the word stress in terms of worry um neuroses anxiety um i'd say more hyperactive brain my brain was more active over the initial weeks of covid-19 the talk of lockdown etc than any other time in my life waking up each day 3:30 4:30 in the morning uh, new ideas and because for me it wasn't just a matter of understanding it and figuring out what the implications it was then okay how do i explain those implications to my audience the person in the street the average property investor um etc so a three stage process um i wouldn't call that stressful it was amazingly exciting but it 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 means one one would get extremely tired um all along the way and certainly for early this year the outlook was exceedingly negative but there was a point at which i thought to myself well hang on you know back in march april into may hang on I know exactly as much about what's going to happen during a global pandemic as all of the economists in the Federal Reserve in the United States, every man and his dog in the Bank of England, the Reserve Bank of Australia or whatever. So why are we all, if we don't know anything, gravitating automatically to the most negative scenario? The house prices are falling, share markets will will crash um again, massive unemployment at 20%. Why have we all gone there? and we've all, we all went to that sort of level i think because we were just thinking oh i guess it's a great depression um scenario but it's very different uh from that sort of situation and i thought well i still don't really know where things are going to go but i think the commentary does need to be more balanced and so that's why rather than emphasizing well people are going to lose their jobs blah 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 
I, I started uh, talking about the insulating factors, things which won't, wouldn't stop our economy shrinking towards the middle of the year, but which would mitigate the extent of the decline, the plummeting um, interest rates, the diversion of $10 billion from spending overseas to spending within New Zealand, obviously the government's assistance programs, uh, the, the migration boom ahead of lockdown with people choosing to stay uh, in New Zealand, etc., so I, I never came out at any point and said, you know, it's still all pretty bad around us, but I can easily see house prices rising 15% in the coming year. And that sort of cuts to the heart of another thing out there relevant to us economists. Let's say you do your analysis and you go, I see something totally different from everybody out there. You're going to be exceptionally brave if you come out and say it. Because one of the tricks of actually minimizing your stress of having your bosses say, you know, are you really sure about this, Tony? Um, is don't get too aggressively far from the herd. You can stray off to the side, but if everyone say, is saying, uh, for instance, oh, house prices are going down, and you say, no, they're going to go up, actually, while you might get a lot, a lot of attention, you could actually lose a lot of credibility with many people as well, because by the time it comes around to maybe, you know, you prove to be right, um, they've probably sort of forgotten. So one of the rules, de facto rules, is take a different view, especially if you're working in a bank in a dealing room environment, you need a different view to try and sell your services to the fund managers here and overseas. But um, don't stray too far from the herd or people will go, you could be right, but here, yeah, sorry, I'm going to stick with this lot over, over here. That's part of the stressful balancing act. Kia ora, I'm Sophie. I'm Simon. And I'm Alice. And together we host the spin-off's food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Join us each month as we explore a vast culinary landscape. From the gourmet. Ooh la la. To your more hearty tucker. Onion dip, anyone? Everything's on the table in Dietary Requirements. Subscribe wherever you listen to all your favourite podcasts. <laughs> lovely podcast listeners jane here with a friendly reminder that christmas is right around the corner and you know presents and all that the good news is we've got all or at least some of your gift giving needs covered at the spin-off shop from tea towels to t-shirts tote bags to toby morris prints or a copy of the spin-off book our range of merch will look great under a tree or in a stocking or at a secret santa exchange in any kind of gift giving situation they'll look good what I'm trying to get at but don't take my word for it go and see for yourself head to members.thespinoff.co.nz forward slash shop and just try to resist actually don't try to resist just buy some stuff today if possible thank you bye yeah and you mentioned before the kind of the house price thing which is such a big part of um the economy and what banks do in New Zealand and you know for most people who own houses or would like to uh, very central to their financial lives as well um over your years uh following this have we become more obsessed is it more of a kind of obsession than it has been over time um has it always been you know as, as far as I've kind of been following it people have been saying this is unsustainable and can't continue, um, yet, yet it kind of has. Um, but yeah, like, is it getting is it getting worse? <laughs> okay, I think it's getting different. I'm thinking back, I guess, to the days when my father was a builder, the 60s, the, the, the 70s, etc. Housing was, was always the plan. It was the life plan. Find your partner, get married, you know, get a new house relatively early on. And so many houses back then were at the affordable entry um, level. 
And so housing was always a significant thing. It wasn't large from an investment point of view. We were relying, you know, on the national superannuation. There wasn't any great thoughts about, you know, retiring baby boomers. There weren't official warnings from the government about the need to save for retirement. But from about 30 years ago, we had governments running campaigns saying, oh, maybe the fiscal numbers mean uh, you won't get national superannuation in the future. Maybe you need to do some more saving and investing. So from the 1980s into the 90s, we got people thinking, maybe I do need to undertake my own investments. So an investor group developed partly as a result of the government campaigns um, back at that time. We saw from the 1980s with the freeing up of lending by the banks, up until then credit had been rationed, but with financial deregulation, all of a sudden the banks were competing with each other to, to get large. And so credit was more readily available for somebody to uh, undertake housing purchase than was ever the case uh, before. And so that, uh, I guess, activated some interest uh, out there. Um, from 1992, we had interest rates falling from high levels. And this, I think is one of the biggest things out there. For me, the key reason that house prices have structurally changed from average of three times income to six times income, country as a whole, this sort of thing, is because of the structural decline in interest rates in New Zealand and overseas over the past three, for some countries it's, it's about four decades. And what I mean there is from 1992 in New Zealand, inflation consolidated at 2%. We've roughly been there ever since. We saw the mortgage rates and the term deposit rates uh, take a structural decline over 1992, 1993. Uh, yeah, buying your home was more affordable because the mortgage rates went down. But the investors were saying, I'm not getting 12% six-month term deposit rates any longer. I'm only getting 6%. They went towards investments, including finance companies, over the 1990s. And so that led to a, a, a pricing into the housing market of the decline in interest rates. We saw the second structural decline in interest rates during and after the global financial crisis, and that also made housing more affordable for many people. The reduced returns on other assets encouraged a whole new group of investors to go into the housing market. And this one is, is really interesting because when we saw from 2011 the first wave of baby boomers um, retiring, they started doing exactly the opposite of what we all thought they'd surely do when they got close to retirement of sell any investment property they might have and live on the earnings. They looked at what they could get on the earnings and went, that's not enough. A, I'm not selling this investment property I bought in 1993. B, maybe I'll buy another one. So the GFC, the structural decline in interest rates over the uh, 2010s, very important in propelling house prices up even further. And now we are in or completed whatever the third and uh, I oh, certainly hope so, final structural decline in interest rates. It started last year when the Reserve Bank panicked a bit with business confidence going down and they cut interest rates three quarters of a percent from May to August 2019 and they cut again this year. They suggested there was a chance for negative interest rates next year. I think that's gone out the window for 2021 and they said, uh, like other central banks, we're going to keep interest rates low for a long period of time. That's very important expectations drive asset markets, asset prices. The expectation of every investor out there is these interest rates on term deposits, corporate bonds, man, they may never go back to where they were. If I sell my investment property, I'll, I'll put the money in the bank and get 0.9% taxed and then inflation off that. I'm not going to sell the property. I'm going to keep it and maybe I'll get another one. And so I think there's still some repricing going on but from where I'm sitting, this is the last big gasp 
of the huge structural change in house prices and the ratio of average house prices to income that stretched over about a three-decade period. And I wonder if other people can see and feel that as well. And hence the FOMO in one of the monthly surveys I've got. I, I asked real estate agents a number of questions. Are you seeing fear of missing out uh, there? And in the first survey in May, a net 2% of agents said, no, nah, no FOMO. Now it's running at a net 88%. People are looking to get on this bandwagon and, 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 and not miss out. You didn't quite get that same sort of dynamic before the days of financial deregulation in the 1980s. And as a country, we seem to kind of talk ourselves into, oh, this is normal and it's okay and it'll be right, uh, with, you know, the, the government saying um, people should be able to expect a little bit of asset price rise and saying, you know, everyone's saying, well, we want houses to be more affordable, but we don't want the price of them to come down, which uh, doesn't seem to be brilliant logic. Uh, but in this environment of low interest rates and the like, there's all kinds of reasons that you can say, oh, well, this is how it, it kind of makes sense. But does it really make sense for a tiny country like New Zealand to have one of the most unaffordable housing price to income ratios um, when, you know, we, we, we're more unaffordable than like a London or New York? But we don't have quite the same industry or pull for people to live here or wages to sustain it. Uh, it, 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 it kind of feels like we're very good at making excuses for it, but it may still just not make a particular amount of sense. Well, basic economics. This is where, I guess, we economists try to, you know, put, put out, uh, get the explanations out there. Um, number one, getting properties, houses built in New Zealand is relatively difficult. We've got earthquake rules which have strengthened over the past three decades, energy efficiency rules which have strengthened as well. We build houses which are bigger than they used to be. Over the past year, the average size of a house built is about 160 uh, square metres. Over the 1970s, for which we've got data, 75 to 79, the average size was about 112 square metres. We have toilets on the inside these days, and there's normally more than one of them as well. We've got stuff in the walls to keep your house warm in, in winter. Um, so the houses being built these days are completely different from the past. We do tend to like the individually designed properties and we sort of look down our noses at the cookie cutter properties. We are in New Zealand for lifestyle. There's not too many people who are staying in New Zealand or have come back to New Zealand to make their fortunes. We go to those other places. So part of that lifestyle, of course, keeps nimbyism uh, strong. I came back to New Zealand because I always wanted a lovely wooden house in Roseneath or Mount Victoria or something, and I will fight tooth and nail to prevent intensification. We see that sort of all around the country um, as well. So, yeah, the planning rules, etc. There's also the fact um, we had uh, some good research come out in recent years by uh, Kay Saville-Smith, uh, important researcher in the housing market, noting that up until the 1990s, about 25% of houses built in New Zealand were in the lowest 25% of the price range. Let's call that affordable. Since the mid-1990s, don't know why, only about 5% of the houses being built are affordable. And here's the interesting thing. We talk about housing shortage. Since 1991 census, our population in New Zealand has grown about 30%. The number of houses sitting out there has also grown about 30%. But so to technically, there's not a housing shortage, but not enough houses have been built in Auckland and we have had not enough of the affordable houses being built. 
So in order to get an improved affordability, you need to do take measures which increase the cheaper number of houses being built. It's not a quantity thing. It's the type of houses being built that really matters there. And as I say, with the structural change in interest rates over this period of time, it's, it's simply not going to lead to any great unwinding of the house prices. And then there is the, the first bit you were sort of hinting at there, Simon, about no one wants house prices to go down. If you're thinking about a 64% home ownership rate, maybe we're talking about one and a half to two million um, adults, either individually or as partners, who own houses. Let's call that two million voters who do not want house prices to go down. Whereas the individuals and the partners who are first home buyers each year, maybe there's, I don't know, 35,000 of those. The voter imbalance is pretty clear. Hence the Prime Minister not coming out and saying, boy, it'd be great if house prices went down. Certainly not during the global pandemic time. Yeah, so it it really is a very clear thing that the house-owning classes bother voting and keep it uh, quite comfortable for themselves, while the non-house-owning classes don't have uh, either the uh, engagement at the ballot box or the incentive. Well, you think they well, have the incentive. They, they plan to have the incentive. That's the thing as Kiwis. I plan to be incentivized to promote NIMBYism. I plan to get on the property ladder. That's what the whole focus is. And that's where you know one of the main complaints of the young people is that it's hard to get your foot on the ladder. So it's no good people like me saying, yeah, but you're paying 2.5% interest rate. I paid 18.5% in 87. Whenever I say that to an audience, there's always some beggar comes up, yeah, mate, you are lucky. I paid 22 or 23%. Um, yeah, yeah. And this is what I, what I mean. If you go into one, just go into one of the bank calculators Enter the price of a property, 600 grand, uh, take a 10% deposit, work out what the total payments add up to to service that mortgage over 30 years at 2.5% versus even 12%. You will see that actually the affordability equation is completely different from everything we are led to believe now because of the fall in the interest rates. Yeah, it's wild. It's so funny to think that it's a, it's kind of in the New Zealand psyche to get on the property ladder and then pull the ladder up a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably, the, probably the same overseas. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. as soon as house prices start falling o- over overseas, uh, uh, people get upset about it. And I was watching the selling property in Australia, whatever, whatever that, that program's called, and the guy saying, oh, the prices have been falling recently, so it must have been two or three years ago in Sydney. It's an opportunity to get in. It's not, you know, avoid it. It's an opportunity to get in. But that gives you one of the most interesting dynamics out there. You see, economics is it's part sociology and part psychology. When we saw Auckland stall from late house prices, late 2016 through to late 2019, that was an opportunity for many young people to get their foot on the ladder. But a lot of them would have gone, yeah, but the prices are going nowhere and they fell over the past few months. I'm worried that if I buy, the price goes down. So they didn't buy. And now... Since early, since May, basically, those younger people who yeah, didn't pull finger and do something from 2017 into 2019, they're catching up on the spending they didn't do back then. But the other element in this is that this is where cycles come from. People who in the next five years were thinking, I'm going to travel, I'm going to lark it up, I'm going to buy lots of clothing, then I'll save for a house. Around the world, they've reversed that. I can't travel, I'm going to focus on house purchase now, and then I will do some traveling further on. And that just screams to me as an economist, this period of hyper-intensity in the housing market, it definitely does not persist. I don't think it persists beyond the middle of next year. The prices will continue to rise, but it's definitely going to slow down. 
and the cycle, as it were, moves into a different phase where once the borders are open, I'm pretty convinced we're going to travel holus bolus and we won't then be spending so much on the houses come 22, 2023. Yeah, wow. And t- tell me a bit about your decision to disrupt yourself and uh, move on from the job as the chief economist and um, and, and then be um, working and taking your commentary directly to people. Yeah, you see, I'd sort of already been doing that in terms of going directly to people. I was one of the reasons I stayed with the BNZ for 26 and a half years was that I had an astonishingly high degree of freedom to do whatever I wanted, whatever I felt might be most useful in terms of assisting, obviously, the bank clients predominantly, but also the public generally part of the bank's branding. I was I was a part of it there. Um, for a while, I was free to do that. And so uh, I'm thinking maybe 10 or so years ago, people didn't seem to understand enough about the relationship with China and the benefits for New Zealand of trade with China. Um, and so I, I created a special publication. I, I tried to educate people about you know, the benefits of trade with China. Similarly, working a little bit with Kia about with the expat Kiwi community and the opportunities of working with them to improve things back in New Zealand. Something, of course, going through the roof at the moment is us Kiwis back in New Zealand, five million of us, we think there's one million Kiwi residents overseas. Silly beggars, I bet they wish here. They're all coming back when the borders open. That's another reason we're buying houses at the moment. We think one million Kiwis is going to flock back as soon as the uh, aircraft capacity is is going to be there. Um, they won't. They're overseas for a very um, um, good reason. But, uh, you know, basically, uh, I found myself, I guess, uh, uh, last year, late late in the year, thinking, OK, look, I've achieved a lot of what I wanted to achieve at the, uh, at the bank there. Maybe I can just go out for myself. Um, after 30 years in the banking sector, the need to make money was not particularly there of never been into fast cars or girlfriends on the sly or that sort of thing, so had saved up money. So I thought, well, there's no great monetary pressure to do this. I might as well leave. I left, two-week break, and then I felt, no, I still need to get information out there to the average person. And what I realised was something I'd sort of realised before but hadn't thought much about. Ultimately, there's one thing I guess I'm trying to do. You asked me right at the start about how did I get into economics But why am I still in it, even now, on my own? I'm trying to send a message through time, back to about 1975, just a simple message to my father to basically say, Barry, this economy is going tits up. You want to pull back on the spec housing, pull back on growing the debt because things are going to go bad. And if somebody had been able to talk to him and other builders, small trading people like that, back at the time, then maybe they wouldn't have been burnt out by that massive downturn in the economy. So ultimately, that's still why I'm here now. I'm looking to send simple messages to people, not so much to tell them how to profit from where the economy is going to go, but how to avoid making mistakes. For instance, you know, I've given a hint there that from the middle of next year, I'm going to be trying to get a message more strongly out there don't keep thinking house prices rise 15 to 20% per annum. You could come unstuck. Uh, there's a reason banks are increasing their loan-to-value ratio requirements. So often that's all I'm trying to do, not so much forecast, is drag people away from unreasonable views on the economy, which could lead them to making very unreasonable business um, decisions. And maybe just to sort of finally, just to finish off this tiny section, um, I, I had a goal over the period from uh, April there in particular to try and make businesses think that when they came to looking at staff numbers and thinking about laying people off at the end of one of the wage subsidy rounds, they'd go, yeah, no. This bloke was just reminding us about the biggest problem for many businesses pre-COVID was not enough labour, 
shortages. And if I could just sow a seed of doubt in the minds of people by running through my insulating factors, giving hope for the future, they would retain more of their staff. And I've had some feedback there that they did decide, we'll just wait a bit longer. And those that waited, they're not out there scrambling like every other man and his dog trying to hire people who are no longer um, available. So stuff like that. Oh, that's magic. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story today. That's Tony Alexander. You can uh, subscribe to Tony's View through TonyAlexander.nz. Uh, uh, and also there's the premium, which uh, which goes super deep if it's part of your business. Thank you so much for joining us today to, to share your story, Tony Alexander. Look, thanks very much, Simon, for having us on. All the best, everyone. Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing. And thank you very much for having us along in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound and brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.